So, in our study here on eschatology, we have discussed the rapture of the church. We have discussed uh, the battle that is described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. We did encourage the reading of chapters 36 through 39 uh, because it speaks of the restoration of Israel, both in its immediate um, uh, fulfillment, uh, 1948, but also in the more far-reaching view of their gathering in the millennial kingdom and that kind of thing. So we want you to read the whole thing. But in chapters 38 and 39, there's a battle that is described uh, that the Lord himself intervenes in, visibly so, so that the nations will know he's the Lord. But this battle takes place locally in Israel and only by a certain number of nations named in that passage uh, around uh, Israel, and they are attacking them. Uh, noticeably absent, by the way, just uh, as a quick aside, is uh, Saudi Arabia, Sheba and Dedan, but also um, Tarshish and her young lions, which we suggested could mean Britain and those nations <coughs> born of her, excuse me, and among those would refer to the United States. Again, if that's true, then that's the only place the United States is really ever uh, hinted at in the scripture. But these nations ultimately sit on the sidelines as that battle takes place. So I'll encourage you to uh, go back and listen to those previous episodes. I, I'm biting my tongue not to go back and review all those things, but uh, they're there for you to watch and listen to. Um, but we uh, then moved into a discussion of um, um, how the rapture and Ezekiel 38 and 39, in whatever order those things happen, both will likely have something to do with uh, the world's readiness to receive Antichrist when he comes. Antichrist is spoken of in Revelation 13. He's spoken of in Daniel chapters uh, uh, 9, 7, 9, uh, you know, 11, 12, all these. So it's, there's a lot of mention of him in Daniel. He's mentioned elsewhere. He's mentioned, of course, in the New Testament, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. Um, so we have lots of reference to the Antichrist. Uh, John refers to both the spirit of Antichrist, the idea of many Antichrists, and also the Antichrist. And so there is um, clear mention of this person. And I emphasize he's a person, not a system, not a machine, uh, and that kind of thing. The Antichrist will be a leader who will step up and lead a, 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 a gathering of nations together who ultimately will coalesce behind him uh, and and be led by him to try and stand in the way of Christ at his return in the second coming. Now, we should emphasize, by the way, that the Antichrist and his efforts with all the nations of the world behind him who have taken the mark and are aligned with the beast, the Antichrist, are not really going to create so much as a hiccup in regard to Jesus fulfilling his plans and purposes, but we should note that this is going to happen. And we believe it's literally going to happen. Uh, the scriptures seem to make very clear that these are events that will take place uh, as they're described, you know, there's um, um, there's good reason to believe that this is not somehow allegorical for something. So anyway, that being said, um, the Antichrist is um, uh, uh, and 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 the worship of Antichrist really forms uh, a major point in what Jesus says next in the Olivet Discourse, which is where we went after our discussion of of, um, of Ezekiel thirty and thirty nine. We went into the Olivet Discourse, which is where we are now. We're looking at chapter 24 of Matthew. And again, by way of reference, you also want to consider Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21. But we've gotten up to verse 14 in Matthew 24, and I'm going to start in verse 15. In the midst of this description of the last days, Jesus then says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, 
Whoever reads, by the way, let him understand that parenthetical mentioned there by Matthew and also by Mark to stop and consider what Jesus is saying. In other words, if you and I just read this, which we did, we have a responsibility to do our best to understand it. Let the reader understand. Uh, So let him understand that when this uh, abomination of desolation is standing in the holy place, that which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, uh, not no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So Jesus mentions the abomination of desolation, which is referred to by Daniel the prophet, uh, which is spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Uh, and he also mentions that the great tribulation takes place after this event. Uh, for then, in other words, once you see this, then there shall be great tribulation, such as never has been seen before, nor ever again shall be. So I, at this point, I'd like to interject something that uh, um, I, I tend to refer to the seven years as a tribulation period. And on the one hand, that's not inaccurate in regard to what's going on. But I want to make sure that I don't confuse concepts here. Uh, when we think of tribulation, we think of that which all believers likely go through at some point, um, that uh, if Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, this is something that we just expect. And of course, remembering that he has overcome the world. And so we need not to fear. Um, when we think about the full 70 weeks of Daniel, the full 70th week of Daniel, I should say, That first half of the week is a time where the seals are broken, the Antichrist comes on the scene, and these kinds of things. Um, And to refer to it as a time of tribulation is not completely inaccurate, but we do want to make sure we understand that the Great Tribulation, in other words, a period of time that is very clearly called a time of Great Tribulation, happens at the middle of that 70th week, or that last seven-year period, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, Once that abomination of desolation is in place, then begins the Great Tribulation. And Jesus said that in Matthew 24. We see that basically described in Revelation once we get to chapter 13 uh, and those kinds of things. And so um, that being said, I just want to make sure that I, I, I try to be a little more specific. I will probably refer to the last seven years, I'll try to be much more specific and call that Daniel's 70th week and, and be a little more careful about where I use the word tribulation again, just not that it's totally out of place, but just to make sure I'm a little bit more clear about that. So um, so if you hear me accidentally just start referring to tribulation so loosely, stop and say, hey man, stop doing that. So here we go. I'll give my, my level best. So okay, so Matthew 24, Jesus speaks now the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So let me encourage you to turn to Daniel chapter um, chapter 12 for a moment, where this um, a little bit more color is given to what the abomination of desolation is about. In, in Daniel chapter 12, starting in, in, uh, in verse 11, I'll just read verse 11, uh, and from that time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Now, we've spent time, to, and I'll, I'll do my best to remember to link in here. We've talked about, we did a video where we spoke specifically about the 1260 days, 
1290 days, and also the 1335 days that are spoken of uh, in Daniel. And so I'll put that link there to, so you can look into that. I won't go into it here. But that being said, um, when the abomination of desolation is set up, it is in concert with the idea of sacrifices and offerings coming to an end, which means that this takes place in a Jewish temple. Now, the temple, as we know from Scripture, is going to be set up in Jerusalem. If for no other reason, then that's always where the temple is presumed to stand. That's where Solomon built it. That's where uh, Haggai sought to uh, built theirs. That's where the, the temple in Jesus' time stood that was built upon Haggai's temple. Um, this, is, this is the place where the temple is. Matter of fact, if sacrifices and offerings could take place somewhere else, then the Jews would have done that by now. But they expect to be doing this again in Jerusalem, and hence the third temple will involve, in some, some sense, in some reality, there will be sacrifices and offerings again. However, in the midst, and, and, and by the way, I'm also going to ask you at this point to turn with me to Daniel chapter 9, um, because uh, here is where we have Daniel's 70-week prophecy, and we also have reference to this idea of what happens in the middle of the 70th week at the hands of Antichrist. So I'll encourage you to go ahead and read verses 24 through 27, but again, in my effort to keep these at about 20 minutes, we're just going to focus on verse 27. By the way, I failed miserably at hitting 20 minutes on virtually every attempt, but we're, we're always trying. So anyway, uh, verse 27, then he, referring to Antichrist, this leader who will rise up, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, in other words, which has already been ordained, is poured out upon the desolate or that desolator. So in that passage, what we see is that a, a covenant is signed by Antichrist with Israel. Now, the many refers to Israel, but may also refer to some peripheral nations as well, but it has primarily to do with Israel. And we know this because in the middle of that seven-year covenant, the Antichrist violates it and causes them to stop their sacrifices and offerings, as Daniel referred to in chapter 12 again. Now, when the Antichrist comes into the temple and causes these offerings and sacrifices to cease... Um, that will begin the Great Tribulation period, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, and as we see again unfolding in Revelation chapter 13 on. Excuse me one second here. So, gosh, it's always a good idea to have a cup of coffee around. So, mentioned in that Daniel 9.27 and 12.11 is this idea of the abomination of desolation. Um, now, the presumption is that in signing this covenant with Israel, that this will allow them to build their temple so that they can once again resume sacrifices and offerings. There is no temple yet, and so therefore we look forward to this third temple being built. Uh, again, for those who think that maybe the abomination of desolation is what took place under Antiochus Epiphanes in 165 BC, or whether it's what took place under Titus Vespasian in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which, by the way, also was a fulfillment of Jesus' own prophecy of those not one stone being left upon another. Um, we did a video on that as well. The abomination of desolation has not happened yet, and there is no temple yet. So what we are working under the presumption is that there will be a third temple built 
and it will have the uh, sacrifices and offerings taking place, and it is in that temple, in the midst of those sacrifices and offerings, uh, in the middle of that seven-year period of time, the Antichrist will walk in, bring those offerings to a cease, and, and, and ultimately desecrate the temple. How will he desecrate it? Well, we're going to go ahead and move ahead now to Second um, Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, by the way, we give these scripture references, we spend time looking at them, but I put the references in the notes underneath the uh, episode so that you can look them up and read them yourself. Um, my, I'm thankful that we can go through these things together and that you watch or listen, but really my hope is that you will take time to, to read these passages and begin to piece these things together for yourself so that you will become well-adept at understanding these ideas. Now, People come to different conclusions on some of these points, by the way, and that's that's fair. I mean, if we give a good faith effort in understanding the Scripture, seeking to rightly divide it, understand it as it's intended to be understood, uh, sometimes we do come to different conclusions, and we debate these things and discuss them, but that should never dissuade us from taking time and learning it and digesting it and making it our own, owning it in our own hearts and minds as well, having knowledge of it. So that being said, we're in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. By the way, as we're turning there, um, you may have seen uh, the picture of this Guardian for International Peace and Security that has made the news lately of the, the statue uh, in uh, by the UN. That is a picture of this like leopard face, this sort of lion sort of face with uh, this creature with the wings and that, essentially looking like the beast that Daniel describes in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, that we also see in Revelation chapter 13. Um, and it's a statue, uh, and it's there at the UN. Now, on the one hand, um, you know, the artists who created it may or may not have really been thinking about Daniel. I don't know. It seems awfully close to not be aware at all of this. Um, but what I find significant about this is that this statue represents some kind of an entity or being or concept that guards international peace and security. The guardian of, like the personification of a guardian of international peace and security. Well, this description of the beast that I've been mentioning here, like I just mentioned in Revelation 13, Daniel 7, that this beast is the Antichrist. This beast is representative in Scripture of the Antichrist. It's it's representative in that these things ultimately are personified in a person, but these these elements of this picture of this beast are elements that harken back to previous empires that have conquered the world. The Antichrist sort of is a composite of many of the characteristics of these previous attempts, and he ultimately succeeds. And so this is, um, this is a uh, very... Uh, um, significant thing that this thing would be sitting right out front like this and, and be looked at as sort of a representation of the guardian of security, of international security and that kind of thing. One day the Antichrist, who is personified by this, will actually be that person. Now that, that makes this statue just another conditioning agent uh, when the Antichrist comes. There's something in the global psyche that will be just that little bit more prepared to receive him when he comes because of things like this. I'll post a picture of it if you haven't already seen it. Uh, so you can. But anyway, back to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. I am never going to hit my 20-minute mark once again, but here we go. So in chapter th- uh, 2, verse 3, Paul says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, 
and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So he's going to go into the temple, so a temple has to be there. He's going to declare himself to be God and demand to be worshipped above everything that is worshipped. Okay? Now, in Daniel, again, there's reference to this kind of thing. Uh, earlier in chapter uh, chapters 11 and 12. But it goes on, verse 5, Do you not remember that I told you these things? When I was with you, I told you these things. Again, significant that a brand new church plant with new believers is being taught eschatology. I think that's a great uh, reminder of how important it is for eschatology to be part of our daily balanced biblical diet. And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. In short, my view of this Uh, is that this is speaking of the Holy Spirit's indwelling of the church. The church being the restrainer, really the Holy Spirit being the restrainer, but doing so by virtue of the presence of the church on earth. When the church is raptured away, the restrainer will be taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit is never absent from being everywhere. He's God. But in regard to his restraining force through the church, that will be different when the church is raptured away. For the mystery of lawlessness, verse 7 Uh, is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one, in other words, after that happens, then the lawless one will be revealed. Now, it doesn't mean the lawless one's not on earth, even actively involved in government and politics, but he will become, he will be fully realized as the, uh, he will come to his full ascension as, as Antichrist after the rapture of the church takes place. And there are many good reasons why that should be. But that being the case, Uh, um, uh, And the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power signs and lying wonders and with uh, 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 with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That, all, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There's a lot there, obviously, but I wanted to read the whole passage to help give it some of its, not take any of its teeth away. Just want to make sure we see the, 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 really the fullness of what's going on here. But in terms of Antichrist, that is what he's about. Now, in Revelation 13, which is, I think, going to be probably our last stop in terms of looking at passages... Uh, In Revelation 13, we see this described by John the Apostle in the vision that he has given in the Revelation. Uh, Now, Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, describes this Antichrist, even describing the beast, as we just spoke about here in verse 2, with this composite of these previous beasts ultimately reaching their crescendo in him. He's given a mouth to speak great things, he blasphemes, he brings the world together, And in verses 11 through 18, we're now introduced to a second beast, somebody who is partner to the first beast, the Antichrist who is a partner to the, or the uh, false prophet who is a partner to the Antichrist. And I'll just read a couple of passages here, but notice uh, if you read the entire passage, you'll see that uh, he also uh, uh, speaks like the dragon who inspire, empowers and inspires both the Antichrist and the false prophet. He exercises all the authority of the first beef, beast, the first beef, the first beast, uh, whose deadly wound was healed. Uh, he performs great signs. He causes fire to come down from heaven in the sight of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth with all these signs and wonders that he does. And here at the end of verse 14, it says, 
that he tells those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived, and he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom, and he goes on to explain the number 666. So, um, the Antichrist has a partner named the false, who's known as the false prophet. Uh, he's called that elsewhere throughout these passages. Um, and he causes the world to come together and to make an image to the beast, to the, fall, the first beast, to the Antichrist. Now, Jesus says this abomination of desolation, this statue, which will stand in the holy place, right? So this statue that is made is in the holy place as an object of worship. It essentially is alongside the Antichrist, who is what this image is, a personific- is, is, is personifying. And the false, the, the false prophet actually gives power or gives life to this image And the image causes people to worship the Antichrist. This is the ultimate expression of the desecration of the temple. This is the abomination of desolation. There have been types in the past. Again, we mentioned Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, uh, he set up a statue of Zeus in uh, in the temple uh, in 165 AD. In the holy place, he slaughtered a pig on the altar, all these kinds of things. However, Jesus spoke of the actual abomination of desolation that, that, uh, that Daniel referred to as being yet future even to Jesus' own time. And so that kind of thing has not happened up until the day when it does happen. There's no, there's, it's not happened yet. So that being said, this is what we're ultimately looking for in the days ahead. So a lot here in this little bit of in this, this, this concept, I should say, of the abomination of desolation we want to be careful to let the scripture speak for itself about what it's referring to and not try to read into it things that we see going on in the world. The Bible is pretty specific about what this thing is, where it's going to take place, what it will entail, the worship of the beast, the taking of the mark, all these kinds of things. This stuff all coalesces around this event, the abomination of desolation. And that also begins the starting gun for the final three and a half years of tribulation, the great tribulation, that will ultimately uh, end in Christ's return to earth, which we see happening in Revelation chapter 19. So, that being said, um, I wanted to take that time to kind of give some explanation, and I, I, I know that some of you watching are saying, well, we've kind of covered that ground before. Yeah, we have. We've, we've talked about it a number of times along the way. It's come up in many prophecy briefs and series we've done. But from time to time, as we make our way through, it's good for us to, especially when we're putting together a sequence of events, to kind of explain these things and, and describe where they fit on the timetable and all that kind of thing. Um, I don't always assume that people have watched all the previous ones to have come across some of the information we're sharing here, so I don't really mind going through it uh, again from time to time. So that being said, um, I'm going to go ahead and stop there just with the thought that as Jesus describes that back in Matthew 24, he talks about how um, when that happens, the Jews are supposed to flee from Judea. In other words, Jerusalem, which is in Judea, where this event takes place, is going to begin a grand persecution, a huge pervasive persecution against uh, the Jews, and they're going to flee, which is what we see happening in Revelation chapters 12 and 13 as we see this event taking place. So um, 
one other thing on there, by the way, I'll mention. Last time I mentioned how Matthew 24, from my perspective, has, uh, the, from my view, the church and the rapture of the church are not in view in chapter 24 of Matthew. There are verses that seem to sound like the rapture in that, but they don't refer to the rapture. Uh, And there's good reasons to understand that as we make our way through. When we get to those passages, we'll talk about it. But Matthew 24, uh, as well as Daniel's 70th week at all, matter of fact, all of the 70 weeks of this prophecy specifically focus on uh, Daniel's people and the holy city. In other words, the Jews and Jerusalem. And in, uh, in Daniel 9.24, the angel begins the prophecy by saying, Seventy weeks are appointed to you, Daniel, your people, and your holy city. And so we know who's in view in these 70 weeks. And that 70th week, which is what is described in Revelation chapters 6 through 20, uh, ultimately are, well, I guess you could say 21 with the full establishing of the kingdom and everything, but um, there is... Uh, in view, Israel. That's not to say that there's not other people, there's not other things, but this prophecy, the words that are having to do with the 70th week of Daniel are keyed in on Israel and Jerusalem and those events and people that are there and that take place there. And I think when we understand that, it helps us get a better, fuller sense of what Jesus was talking about in the passage we're studying, Matthew 24, Mark 13, uh, Luke 21, uh, and also the book of Revelation after chapter 4, chapter 5, into chapter 6, where the church is no longer in view once we get to chapter 6. We don't see them again, us again, the church again, until the return of Christ. We see some representation in some sort of way, through the elders maybe, and that kind of thing, but the church itself is not in view on the earth during that period of time. And that's significant, and that becomes... Part of the key to understanding this book, uh, Revelation, uh, uh, um, correctly. And so, that being said, let me stop there. Um, and uh, if you have questions, thoughts, anything like that, feel free to go ahead and leave them in the comments section below here on our YouTube channel. Or you can go to my website at parsonspad.com. You can comment there. Or you can email me there. And you can also uh, watch these videos there, as as you can on our church's website, calvarychapelfranklin.com, where, again, you can email me as well. So, thanks for watching. Thanks for following along on our journey to sort of unpacking the sequence, uh, at least from my perspective, what I think is the, uh, the way things will unfold in the last days. So, Father, we just pray that you continue to help us to understand, to look to your word and let your word direct and drive the conversation of how these things go. Help us not to read into the Scripture, but to rather view things from the perspective of what Scripture says. And uh, so help us to be good students of your Word. Help us to rightly divide it. Help us to um, come to it with an open mind and, and open eyes, ready to receive what you would have to say. And again, use that as the basis by which we understand where we are on your prophetic timetable. Thank you, Lord, that there's a great future and hope that we have yet to inherit and that we're looking forward to. And Lord, we do pray, we, we cry out, oh Lord, come quickly. Thank you, Father. We love you, we praise you and bless you. We look forward to seeing Jesus to come get us. And we pray that until then, the Holy Spirit would continue to not only fill us, but fill us to overflowing and that he would guide us and lead us in the days ahead that we might work while there's yet day. So thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.